0: Welcome to the Headache 360 podcast, a place to listen and learn about the diagnosis and treatment of chronic headache and migraine pain, because information can be the best medicine. Hello, and uh, welcome to the Headache 360 podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Adam Lowenstein. I'm a board-certified plastic surgeon, and I'm also a peripheral nerve migraine and headache surgeon. I do peripheral nerve decompression as outpatient surgery for chronic headaches and migraine headaches, uh, occipital neuralgia, and tension headaches, and headaches of multiple different diagnoses. My effort here on the Headache360 podcast is to get perspectives on diagnoses and treatment of severe headaches from lots of different specialists that, have, that a migraine patient might see before they see me. Uh, as a surgeon, I've uh, got a very high rate of success in in reducing pain. However, what I do is surgery and therefore most patients see many different specialists before they see me. So uh, we're gonna be interviewing and having candid conversations with these other specialists. And we hope to provide a lot of education and information to headache and migraine patients as well as their family and friends. So today I have the honor of interviewing Dr. Andrew Germanovich, Dr. Jermanovic is an interventional pain specialist. He's got a sp- particular interest in uh, headache patients. He's originally from Chicago and he did most of his training there, but he did his uh, pain fellowship at UCLA and decided to stay out West and is currently practicing in Irvine, California. So welcome Dr. Jermanovic.
1: Thank you, Dr. Lowenstein. Um... I'd uh, I'd like to have a a lively discussion about uh, how we treat patients for migraines and a little bit about myself. I'm a board-certified anesthesiologist and a pain specialist, uh, as you've mentioned earlier. Uh, However, I have a slightly different training background in the sense that I also use uh, manual manipulation in my practice, and so my area of of, uh, specialty in addition to standard pain management, uh, which is anesthesiology and medication based is um, paying close attention to relationship between structure and function. And so uh, a lot of people, especially uh, allied health professionals in the field um, advertise themselves as pain management and those could be uh, chiropractors, those could be physical therapists and uh when you ask them why do you say your pain management they say, well we we manage pain with uh, tools other than uh, needles or injections or other therapies so um there's a difference between interne- interventional pain management and you know other forms of pain management so to speak um, and typically an uh, interventional pain management physician is someone who has uh, fellowship training in, in several disciplines not just one and typically this kind of training borrows from different disciplines such as neurology psychiatry physical medicine rehabilitation anesthesiology and radiology so i have to be able to interpret my own images i have to understand how medications work i also have to understand the neural central, you know uh, and peripheral nervous system and musculoskeletal um, anatomy Uh, however you know my uh, interest particular interest is in uh, etiology of migraines um, that um, appear or intensify after traumatic injury, uh, specifically whiplash type or any type of injury. For example, someone falls off the bike and, you know, they maybe had one migraine before and now they have several a month and, and it becomes progressively more debilitating.
0: Are, are all people in your field primarily starting with anesthesiology or can you become an interventional pain specialist um, so, from, from another route?
1: There's uh, currently, there's four routes. There used to be five. Um, you could come in into pain management from radiology fellowships. However, uh, some of the governing bodies uh, determined that they didn't have enough training in physical examination uh, in the residency of uh, radiology. So uh, right now it seems there are four ways. One is anesthesiology. Second is physical medicine rehabilitation. Um, third is psychiatry, and fourth is neurology. And all of us are um, trained from different perspective. Um, and, uh, you know, my, my um, strength as, as, a, as an anesthesiologist is uh, that I understand opioids real well, so I'm very, very frugal with use of these medications because I see firsthand how lethal they can be, even when someone's continually watching them. Um, and also, you know, I've done enough trauma and have managed uh, patients undergoing surgery before and after surgery to <laughs> sort of have a slightly different insight <clears throat> than none of my, uh, my non surgical colleagues have. So I think anesthesiology is a link between um, surgical and medical management, and I kind of see uh, both worlds. And uh, I believe I'm more open um, to treatment. Uh, one way or the other, than uh, some you know other physicians from different camps are because the surgeon is everything surgical to met- medical uh, or clinical um, specialist only everything's you know non-interventional. So I, I I keep my eyes out open for all possible treatment options, and I always offer them to a patient. You know I don't say that you have to have this, you have to have that. I, I offer uh, treatment options to patients, and ultimately it is their job to decide. And my job is to explain each option in as great of a detail as I can, and also explain the nature of their illness so they can decide. So I believe in a treatment partnership rather than um, a relationship when I basically hand them down uh, a treatment pathway.
0: Yeah, I think that's that's fantastic. My you know, One of the things I see um, particularly on, on social media and, and the things that people will ask me, uh, somebody will see uh, um, one of their friends who has migraines, let's say uh, uses uh, tryptan and it works for them and uh, you know the, they immediately want to use that same tryptan. and you know, the the problem that we have with these types of headaches is that um, there is not one answer for every patient and it's a very, Individualized uh, care plan that that we have to that we have to provide, even for what I do, it's you, you don't just release all the nerves. You figure out which nerve is the problem, and then you you release it. Um, sounds like we, in your case as well, you know, figuring out which option is going to be best um, is much much of the issue. But uh, doing it in partnership with the patient is is a great uh, way to go about it.
1: Absolutely. I agree. In fact, you know, a lot of the patients come in to me very frustrated and I'm not a, a first or, or second, even third uh, physician that they saw. They, they, they see plenty of physicians before me, but the way I approach, um, you know, their frustration and, and their complaints is um, I, I go by a, a very methodical process. Um, and approach their complaint or their symptom like like a complex mathematical problem. Say you have a problem in calculus and when you first look at it, it looks, looks terrible. It looks almost like it's unsolvable. But if you just take your time and you break it down into parts and you determine you know, what type uh, of pain it is that they have, you can break it down into parts and solve it one by one. And in the end, you can come together and, and solve even the most complicated pain syndromes and uh, part of my uh, success as a pain management doctor has been the fact that I, you know I listen to people and I don't um, necessarily accept their diagnosis given by someone else as um, dogma or truth. I, 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 I'm skeptical a little bit of everything I receive, and I start over from scratch uh, for myself. Uh, I try to confirm, Um, their diagnosis number one and also number two I always look at options even if if they're on a regimen that works that doesn't necessarily mean that they don't suffer from side effects and consequences of these medications you know they're not without harm and they have uh, harm even long term and even after discontinuing these medications you know I just recently had a patient who took a statin, a medication to combat, you know, high cholesterol level, a year ago, and then after a year of stopping the use of this medication developed a, a horrendous disease called rhabdomyolysis, and they, all his muscles failed, and he was bed bound for months, months. And so to say that medications uh, are great. And if they manage your disease, you have also have to, you know, weigh that what a lifelong effects of those medications will be because it, you're not just managing this disease for today and tomorrow, this is lifelong. This is lifelong. And so when people think about medications, I think about medications, we all, I always ask myself a question, can this be reduced? Uh, Are there any alternatives to this medication? Uh, Because your liver uh, changes from day to day. It's not static. It's a, it's a constantly changing uh, organ and uh, with limited capabilities. And so, you know, I always ask, the patient, I ask myself, can something else be done? And of course, my background in anesthesiology, I have to understand how drugs work, otherwise, I cannot use them. And I have to know everything about them. And typically, when I use a drug, I approach that drug as an anesthesiologist, I have to know every single side effect that, that exists and potential for interaction. Because the medications I use in my practice are very dangerous. Opioids, for one, kill people, uh benzodiazepines or anxiety medications a whole class of drugs is very dangerous as well also kills people in their sleep and so i have to know if there's drug drug interactions um and i can tell you that there isn't a drug that does not have a drug drug interaction they all do yeah so so my treatment approach is comprehensive
0: yeah, let me just uh, the the one thing I, I, I do want to say when we're you know speaking in these podcasts uh, are that you're going to hear uh, the listeners are going to hear different stories about different things um, you know don't stop taking your statins uh, because of uh, the story that uh, Dr. Manovich uh, just just told you that's a, uh, uh, that can happen but it's a, it's a, that's a unfortunate but rare uh, situation and again you know we want you to follow your physicians um advice um the purpose of of what we we talk about here is not necessarily to change an individual's care it's just for you to learn about uh different prospects that you can take to your physician and uh and discuss so um and and i think that listeners will hear not only uh, over and over again uh in the next hour or so uh but on many of our podcasts about the difficulties with opioids and uh, for for me hearing from my patients when they are um weaning and stopping their pain medication that's that's like the best part of my job um to to get patients off of off of their pain meds um which you know as as you said are are very dangerous so absolutely you always go on i'm sorry
1: Uh, Yeah, the point I was trying to make with with the statin is is not to scare people about statins, but the fact that drugs uh, have side effects, and sometimes they're not apparent when you take them, and you can have side effects months, years uh, after you stop them, and so especially with anxiety medications like benzodiazepines, when someone has successfully um, de-escalated a daily dose of of, uh, Xanax, for example, they can have brain zaps um, months sometimes even years after discontinuing these drugs, same thing with antidepressants. So the, the point was is that, you know, one patient may respond to a medication real well and uh, be fine on it with no side effects and other people are not so lucky. And uh, even in anesthesia, I, I just see this vast interpersonal or inter-individual variability in their ability to tolerate drugs and side effects. It's just absolutely fascinating to me how much variability there is between individuals with number one response to treatment and number two side effects which they get from these medications. It's it's vastly vastly different between individuals,
0: and it changes with time. I mean, I, I there's so many times you see a you know uh, a waif of a hundred and ten pound person who you can give um, narcotics to and don't blink, but you know then you, you get this linebacker-looking person who's much more susceptible, and you know, the longer you're on these medications, the less well they work, which require more, which can be more, you know, dangerous. So there's there's certainly a lot. That's a whole big black box uh, that uh, we can get to uh, at some point too. But can, so let me just ask you, uh, you: you were talking about a lot of patients have seen multiple doctors before you. Do all patients? see other doctors before you and get referred to you or do you see patients um as their kind of first and primary caregiver for for their headaches
1: so i i see both this uh patient doctor interaction and the way um uh, patients uh get access to physicians in 2019 has changed from what it was you know 15 20 years ago um uh, patients now feel like they're more empowered and uh, they behave more like consumers. And so when a patient behaves like a consumer, they want to find best possible care. And so there's tools nowadays that they rely on, um, which is online grades of, uh, of sorts, like health grades, vitals, Yelp, et, et cetera. And they now turn to that uh, to make decisions uh, as to which doctor they're going to see. And they also input keywords into search engines, uh, such as Google, uh, Yelp, et cetera. And they sort of, these engines guide them to which uh, doctors they see. Uh, Also, um, you know, uh, of course, uh, get plenty of referrals from primary care physicians, internists, um, sometimes neurologists, and for the most part, surgeons. Um And I don't take any HMO patients, so I don't really rely on the fact of uh, a model practiced by a lot of HMO uh, companies, which is a gatekeeper model. You have to have this, fail this before I send you to a specialist. So I um, receive patients who are self-referred uh, through family members and through um, all sorts of uh, media on which patients rely to find me and that seems to be an evolving field where patient uh is more empowered to be uh, a consumer rather than just being sent from one doctor to another uh in an endless cycle of frustration
0: yeah well the, the most people who come to see me have have been through one if not 10 different uh you know different stops along the way um and uh, i I think that's that's appropriate because nerve decompression surgery is not something to, uh, to to take lightly um but uh it sounds as if um kind of the the stop at the interventional pain um specialist is often kind of where patients can find you know can find relief because of the different options that you that you have do you have um for example, to see me first, you know, I always want to see an MRI of the brain because I don't want to be doing peripheral nerve decompression uh, if somebody actually has a brain tumor or something like that. I want to make sure that uh, I know what their their problem is, or I should say, I want to make sure I know what their problem is not before I do something. Do you have any of similar types of, um, you know, first line? Uh, diagnos- actually, not diagnoses, but um, requirements. Uh, diagnostic uh, requirements. But before somebody sees you,
1: uh, I don't. I actually prefer to see a patient um, without anything. So because you you can you can fall into a certain types of uh, bias uh, when they come in uh, yeah, and, sure. and and be misled down a specific treatment pathway. Um, I, I do order the studies myself, and I'm blessed to be in a multi-specialty group that has on-site uh, digital x-rays and an MRI scanner. Um, so I can order those, um, y- you know, when I need to. But the, the, my first uh, set of tools that I rely on heavily is just good old fashioned physical exam. I I I still use my hands to a great extent, and this is an art that's dying in medical specialties. We all want to see things um, uh, from the inside out, but I like to see things from the outside in. So I still perform a classic, you know, detailed neurologic exam. I rely on that, um, and then I make a, uh, a certain medical, uh, uh, you know, impression. Uh, based on physical exam and I order imaging to support what I already suspect or know not the other way around. I don't try to find something um, that uh, I, I believe exists based on no evidence. I, I look for evidence based on my interaction with the patient so first I get a detailed history, I listen uh, I sit there and listen and let the patient talk for 15-20 minutes and then I sometimes I let them talk and continue to examine them, do my own thing and then I come to a conclusion, you know, there's there's something I see there's tell me more about this Tell me more about that and then I get a complete picture um, uh, when I have everything uh, available to me uh, physical exam findings and Imaging findings and put those together. I I usually get a really good idea and part of um, what I um, take uh, pride in is uh, my ability to do standing um and postural exams, both for uh, physical exam to establish whether there's some kind of uh, anatomic abnormality, such as a short leg syndrome, and also uh, to see if there's these abnormalities under x-ray in their natural state, which is uh, standing and weight bearing uh, that is particularly important um, in, in whiplash type injuries, whether there's a continued aggravation after this injury, why they do not heal under certain conditions. So um, to answer, you know, to kind uh, of answer this succinctly, um, yes, uh, I rely on imaging, but I also prefer to hear the story firsthand. I don't like, um, you know, uh, to to be misled by a specific diagnosis. I always accept patients with their diagnosis, with all the treatment history, and I tend to almost uh, put that aside and make my own conclusion before I review older um, uh, records because in the end in the end I have a more complete picture so in my history they'll tell me what they've tried and failed they'll tell me medications they've tried and failed so I have that uh, but I um, I it happens to me all the time where a surgeon will send me a patient say listen this is what's going on and I find something entirely different um, so the reason I find something entirely different is because I'm not, I don't take their diagnosis and treat it. Like for example, I'll get a referral for an injection. I try to get my own impression before I proceed with treatment.
0: Well, so tell me, like, what kind of surgeon refers to you?
1: So typically, I would have thought that
0: you would have gotten more neurology medical type of. of, uh, No, typically, I I have more,
1: much more referrals from surgeons than I do from from primary um, uh, specialists um, or medical specialists. And it's because of the type of uh, practice that I'm in. So the name of my practice is a Restore Orthopedics and Spine. And as the name implies, uh, we see the uh, majority of patients who have musculoskeletal problems. Well, with these problems, a lot of these patients that I treat for chronic degenerative conditions of the spine and joints, um, they say, you know, by the way, Doc, um, you have terrible migraines. Do you do you treat that? and and so I end up treating these these terrible migraines and and you know I learn from patients more than anybody else and in particular six years ago I had this patient who was an engineer and he had tinnitus uh, with his mm-hmm. migraine and to me that was unusual and this uh, individual who was incredibly smart a brilliant man would just not give up would just not give up on uh, the fact that a lot of uh, specialists dismissed him. He was dismissed by ENTs, he was dismissed by neurologists, he was dismissed by spine surgeons, um, as saying something, you know, there's no relationship between your tinnitus and your um, neck injury. And um, he was really surprised by the fact that I listened and, I, and at that visit I told him, listen, I don't have all the answers to your uh, condition, But I will not rest until I find out and so that day I went and got uh, an orofacial pain text and I read that in uh, a day and a half and I came back with some options that um, he was and and answers actually that he was looking for for a very long time and in the end it, it took it took some time but in the end we were able to cure him of his tinnitus. Uh, And that was a journey. That was a journey that involved, um, you know, medications, uh, injections, burning of nerves in the neck, involved placement of uh, spinal peripheral nerve stimulation leads, which um, um, had complications and eventually led to surgery, which was fusion of a segment a C2 C3 segment that was compressing a nerve and causing his tinnitus and that finally cured it. But it was a journey it was a journey that, number one, no one uh, believed in that being the cause and, and left uh, this patient very frustrated, but it took somebody who, first and foremost, listened. And, and And my belief is if all we do is listen to patients, we'll learn a great deal from them because, to me, that was a great learning experience. And it was this patient that made me learn a lot about migraines and tinnitus, and I've I've been fascinated with the subject matter ever since. And, um, you know, we continue to learn as physicians to say that we are experts in our field is a fallacy because medicine continues to evolve and change. And we always have to stay on top of our game and we always have to continue to read. It doesn't stop in residency, it doesn't stop in fellowship, it doesn't stop after our oral exam or our written examination to get a board certification. It continues. And so, um, you know, my learning is ongoing and I really enjoy it.
0: Well, so, uh, it, uh, there, there's so many directions I could go with that because I actually have occipital neuralgia myself and I have uh, tinnitus. Um, but, uh, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll skip over me and, um, <laughs> move on to, let me just ask you what, so you talked a little about about, a little bit about nerve blocks, you talked a little bit about, um. Uh, nerve stimulators, and I got to tell you, I mean, in particular, one of the things I run into a lot is is frustration with with all of the different doctors that that patients uh, see. And I agree that you know, just sitting and listening to, to patients, you can learn uh, so so very much. Uh, and it basically listening to patients leads you in the direction of the best route of care, which which I think is, uh, as you said, a, a lost art. Um, but a lot, I see a lot of people who have confusion over uh, the C2, C3, um, you, know, n- nerve blocks or, or um, stenosis and all of those diagnoses versus the peripheral nerves that come out from there, which are, you know what I deal with. Um, can you talk a little bit about how you differentiate that diagnosis between,, um, let's say, occipital neuralgia? where you have an impingement um, uh, of the nerves more peripherally versus uh, a a stenosis or uh, a process uh, down deeper that requires either a kind of C2 nerve block or in a worst case scenario, uh, orthopedic surgery?
1: So um, as I've mentioned earlier, I see all sorts of patients and they come from um different uh backgrounds as far as presenting uh pain diagnosis which is pain in the base of the neck um and then pain in the back of the head and then migraines associated with it which increase in intensity and frequency as the time goes on so one of the patients uh, that i typically get is one that has degenerative spine disease which afflicts uh, us as we age and low back pain right now is the number one uh, pain diagnosis Uh, Headache is a number two pain diagnosis and now an evolving diagnosis because of smartphones and and technology that like computers that makes us look down all the time or uh, forward uh, with poor posture associated with it uh, creates a lot of degenerative neck disease. And so what I see a lot of with degenerative neck disease is that you have vertical shrinkage of um, um, intervertebral discs, which are filled with inflammatory molecules. And so as these discs degenerate, they they leach out these inflammatory molecules, uh, one of which is um, CGRP, which stands for calcitonin gene-related peptide. And these molecules leak into the circulation and they cause real pain syndromes, one of which is migraine. In fact, um, there's at least several drugs that are a new generation made of um, mouse antibodies uh, that have been humanized, meaning with every generation they've been uh, created to behave more like a human antibody. They attack this molecule CGRP, and they decrease incidence of migraines. And, if, and I have some experience with these medications because I have administered them to my patients in my practice, and. Lo and behold, their migraine frequency drops from 20 a month down to four or six. And so there's a mechanism in place that one part of the body degenerates, creates an inflammatory molecule. And this inflammatory molecule creates mischief someplace else, which is inside the head. And so from a degenerative perspective, I see that people who are migraineurs or uh, people who typically get migraines and they have one or two say a month or one or two a year, as time goes on have increased incidence of these migraines because of degeneration of structures at the base of their skull and in the neck. Second type of patient I get is a post-surgical patient. You have all sorts of degenerative disease. People have fusions of, um, the neck, both from the front and from the back. And as you know, Blood is very inflammatory as it leaves the blood vessels and it can, on occasion, create scar tissue. And some people scar differently than others. Some people have created very little scar tissue, some create a lot. And so it's not scar tissue that you see on the surface of the skin that looks like a hideous looking scar. It's internal scarring. And it basically looks like molten lead enveloping entire structures where uh, individual blood and then white blood cells clean the area up and deposited extensive. Um, collagen and scar tissue in the area and that can cause all sorts of entrapment neuropathy where nerves um, uh, typically are not elastic structures we only have one elastic nerve in our body and that is sciatic nerve the rest of them do not stretch they glide in tissue planes and so if they are trapped for example when you move your head to the right to the left uh, they they are you know microscopically injured and they release inflammatory molecules and that can Uh, lead to headaches and all sorts of uh, peripheral entrapment time pain syndrome. So, I deal a lot with entrapment neuropathy in my practice because I get a lot of post-surgical patients, both from spine. Um, I also get referrals from abdominal surgeons for entrapment neuropathies in the abdomen. So, these are real syndromes. Uh, These are syndromes where nerves themselves uh, create pain. Uh, It's not the tissue injury that sensitizes nerve endings Uh, which we call nociceptive pain. It's neuropathic pain where nerve itself is causing pain due to entrapment, due to direct nerve injury or uh, for another reason. Um, So, and of course I've also um, uh, treated multiple patients with traumatic injuries such as whiplash. And what I see with these patients following them over time is that continue to deteriorate long after the initial insult so initially they'll come in their neck is stiff they have pain they have body aches muscle aches and they have an enormous amount of muscle pain but that goes away over time however I, I begin to notice when I get MRI two year from the date of injury five years from the date of injury is they begin to deteriorate rapidly and their discs degenerate much more rapidly than um, you know in, in a person a similar age that did not have this kind of violent injury and several things happen number one they have tears of capsules that uh, wrap the small joints of the neck we call those uh, facet joint capsules and so what happens is is you start to get arthritic or nociceptive type uh, inflammatory pain in these capsules that pain is communicated uh, to the central nervous system and the central nervous system gets sensitized because of this constant input of information, which is a pain signal. And so when the central nervous gets sensitized, then all of the central nervous get sensitized, particularly the brain, the brain stem. And so there was an individual I met uh, some time ago uh, who was a dentist from Cedar sinai and unfortunately he has passed since I've, um, I've, I've talked to him last but his name was uh, Dr. Rennie Deleu he was a, a dentist and a scientist, and he described an interesting phenomenon where um, trauma or a uh, persistent pain signal from C4 nerve root, C3 nerve root, um, into the brain stem, uh, specifically a uh, relay station, uh, which, is, uh, which, which has a name. Um, it's called subnucleus caudalis, which is uh, name is complicated, but all that simply means is it's a small relay station that sits in a brainstem and it's in a close anatomic proximity to another relay station, which uh, controls uh, the cranial nerve number five that provides uh, sensation to um, the face, which is mandible, you know, maxilla and everything uh, above the eye. And it also provides uh, sensation to the dura and dural sinuses, which are structures that wrap the brain. So the brain itself, the cortex does not have any sensory fibers, but the structures that surround it do, including the blood vessels inside the brain. These structures have nerves around them uh, that resemble a a fishnet stocking on a leg. uh, And these nerves control the diameter of these vessels. They control their function. They control flow through them and uh, all of that uh, can be go haywire if there's a problem with communication or the communication gets an inappropriate signal which is the case with cervical um, cervicogenic headaches Um, and some people will dismiss these uh, theories and these diagnoses, claiming that migraine is strictly a um you know a, a disorder of the cortex where a small seizure-like focus of irritation spreads through cortical spreading depression and then everything that happens in the neck is a result of uh this seizure-like activity in the brain cortex and not the other way around well um i've I, i could accept this as the dogma or the truth or i could challenge that notion and say that well okay but why if i block the occipital nerve during an active migraine i can stop the migraine if this is a primary disorder of a cortex why does not why doesn't the migraine proceed and so you know i've also um ablated or uh destroyed with electrical current small nerve fibers uh that communicate pain from arthritic joint in the neck to the central nervous system and i have been able to decrease incidence of migraines from 20 a month down to one uh, so, we would like to think that we understand the, the genesis of migraines, but the reality is we really don't. We have an idea that some patients, you know, get migraines because of genetics, but really what triggers them? Uh, there are many different sources. Peripheral entrapment of occipital nerves can be the cause. It could be uh, entrapment of the occipital nerves by whatever reason it could be compression by vessels it could be entrapment of scar tissue it could
0: yeah, be I mean, we 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 you and I have, have talked about this before and we we come from the the same um I guess the same ilk as far as seeing these these entrapments of you know I, I see them not only in the neck but also you know above the eye and in, in the temple region um, and you know going through this with patients um, is uh, you know, it, it certainly educating them about this is, is a lot of what I do, and it sounds like what what you do as well. There's vasculature, fascia. Um, sometimes, you know, in the front of the head, there's, a little, you know, bone uh, that, that entraps nerves, and, and really anything that, that tightens around a nerve can irritate the nerve. And, um, you know, I, I, I couldn't agree more with what you're saying as far as the um, etiologies of of these headaches are I, I don't I don't think they have been well understood. A, a lot of the the stuff that we hear is you know based on uh, thoughts of the vasculature and the intracranial um, you know in in the skull blood vessels dilating causing causing pain and um, you know I think you and I share the the opinion that a lot of these uh, these processes while they may be very valid. Uh, are often triggered by peripheral nerve, um, uh, irritation.
1: Absolutely. And, and there's multiple etiologies or, um, pathways, which lead uh, to onset, uh, of a migraine, for example, we know that, uh, estrogen or hormones. Uh, cause migraines and and women who menstruate will report uh, that there's two camps that right before the onset of menstruation They'll they'll receive this terrible migraine. It's like clockwork uh, That they get these migraines and also at the same time. There's a camp of women that has um, You know onset of these migraines on the first day of menstruation. So estrogen uh, does play an effect and um, you, pe- These people have been these women have been treated with oral contraceptives uh, to um to some extent with uh, great success and there's many many tools available and um to say that you know there's only one way to treat a migraine which is with medication or with uh something else is misleading i think migraine uh, warrants or deserves a comprehensive approach and there will be a population of, of patients that will respond to drug a There'll be population of patients that will uh, uh, respond to injection B, and uh, but there'll be a population of patients that will fail A, B, C, D. Uh, you can go down the whole alphabet, they'll fail everything. And nothing can be more frustrating than have a patient that you really like, that you have a long relationship with, sit, sitting and crying in your office, that her life is falling apart because she cannot work, she is absolutely incapacitated, and to see this kind of distress, and um, you know, not being able to help that person is is very frustrating. At the same time, it's very motivating for me as a physician to look for answers, to not be hard headed about treatment approaches, to continue to look for other options, to to always always be open to other treatment alternatives.
0: Yeah, I mean, what on the other side of that, uh, I'm, I'm gonna bet that you're gonna agree that the most satisfying part of my practice. Um, are the tears after you've fixed somebody because they have been dealing so long with these problems um, you know, I, I operated on somebody last week, and uh, her mother was here and just sobbing that her daughter's pain was was finally gone a- after her surgery and you know this woman that not the mother the patient's 40 years old she's been dealing with this for 30 years and um, it is such a challenging, uh, challenging thing. And I think a lot of the patients who get to you and I as their last line, have, you know, who've been bounced around so much, um, you know, have, have just been dealing with so many um, dead ends for, for so long. And you're, you're absolutely right. It's it, it, taking, taking the time to uh, figure out what is going to work for a particular individual um is 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 so so important can i ask you do, you do you do um nerve stimulators for for headaches
1: i have done them in the past and um the challenges i've run into are um the following number one is is there's a very high rate of complications and uh that complication is typically lead migration because you can't uh fix those leads very effectively to tissues so you basically leave them floating so they sort of do their own thing and you know head is not like um, um, your, your torso you, you move your neck all the time you move it in every possible direction and when you're driving you move it in every possible direction because your eyes take you there and so these leads kind of poke and prod through the skin and sometimes they can even break the skin and come out um, and my frustration has been with uh, stimulation is that uh, because of the population um, of patients that i service which is post-surgical typically um, i rarely get a referral for uh, a migraine patient who has never had any type of surgery uh, strictly for the implantation of a peripheral nerve stimulator and in my view that would that would be great but i i'm not so lucky and there are other physicians that have that. Vascular- so wait, I,
0: I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I, I just want to understand this. So you're saying that patients have had what kind of, what kind of surgery before you?
1: Typically some sort of, um, neck surgery,
0: like a neck fusion or something like yes,
1: that. Yes. And that causes, yeah. uh, uh, an explosion in their incidence and number of migraines. And, and the frustration I have is that I try to put a peripheral nerve stimulator in it, but they have scarring, extensive scarring under the skin, under the muscle. And so the scar tissue, one one interesting thing about the scar tissue is that it does not uh, conduct electrical current well. Part of the part of the reason why people do so poorly after heart attacks is that the muscle, which normally conducts electrical current, uh, turns into scar and so they have these dysrhythmias they have a fib they they have ventricular uh, conduction abnormalities those are for heart patients well the same thing happens in patients who have any type of scarring in a periphery by the nurse and you try to stimulate them is that the nerve doesn't get the stimulation, but everything around it does, the muscle does. And so what, what I've noticed in the past is that I will implant these leads, uh, crank up the, the amplitude, um, and you know they'll have grabbing of the occipital muscles, the trapezius will fire up, they have all sorts of jerky motions of their head, whereas the stimulation where I needed it the most, um, which would be over the occipital nerve, uh, would uh, be felt the least. And so. You know the 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 side effects would outweigh the benefits of the nerve stimulation, and so in the in the population of patients that I serviced, this was not a great option.
0: I see. got it, and you know there, I've seen uh, some external nerve stimulators and uh, kind of gadgets that 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 people try. Is there any there's thoughts
1: there's on those? There's, there's new, new, newer nerve stimulators that do not require implant of the um, pulse generator, which is a, a small battery-like device, the, the battery behind the pacemaker, so to speak. Um, uh, there's a company called StimWave, and they have these small little leads that can be implanted, and they have a little antenna on the lead that can be stimulated right through the skin with an external device that, that is a wearable device that could be worn in a pocket somewhere nearby. And, you know, this is relatively new technology. Uh, we'll see how that evolves in the future. I mean, technology keeps changing, getting better, and uh, there's always con- continual improvements. Um, and, you know, I'm always excited about new technology and uh, I'm also willing to try it as it comes uh, uh, come along uh, for the appropriate patient. Um, but you, you know it's always it, there, there's always something um, some some kind of complication to everything you try that's implantable uh, and one of these complications is is that every time you put a foreign body a, in, into a patient it elicits an inflammatory response and so the inflammatory response is typically your body recognizing this as foreign it, it doesn't know whether it's an infection or some kind of invading um, uh, organism so it builds a wall around it and this wall is typically made of scar tissue and so any type of implant leads to more scarring and um, and typically the reason these leads fail long term is that if you pull the lead out or if you dissect it out you will notice that this whole lead uh, in, in its entire circumference and its entire length is covered in dense dense scar tissue of variable thickness um, and that is a body's way of isolating what it thinks is an invading organism um, from harming the body. And it's just what our bodies do. So I do like implantable devices, but they have their limitation. And uh, you will find that often uh, in a significant number of patients, over time, these therapies fail. Uh, and it's frustrating because you give them this hope That it will uh, cure their condition or manage their condition, and it does for a time. It does, and it's very frustrating when the therapy slowly fails over time. It's very frustrating. Yeah, I mean,
0: I hear uh, people with broken leads. That's the that's the keywords that I hear uh, a lot. That you know, I had a stimulator and it uh, it worked for a while, but then the leads broke, which may just be late. Terminology for migration or scar tissue or a or, or great many things but um, They do you know, in yeah, fact that's...
1: break because these leads typically have eight small wires in them that are uh, of some um, Metal and if you have experience of playing around with wires as a kid, you know You can break any wire <laughs> if you bend it enough times, you know So they do break in fact because you know one lead uh, which is made of silicone with uh, platinum or cadmium contact points has a metal wire on the inside of that silicone that goes to that platinum contact point to make it work. And so if you bend it enough times, it will break. And so if it's in a location, like it it sits behind the ear or in a neck and people toss and turn all night long in their sleep, um, yeah, you will break those leads over time.
0: Got it, all right. So let's let's go back to um, something you were talking about before, which is your nerve blocks. Um, When you do nerve blocks, uh, can you like what, what do you use? I, I've, I spend a lot of time discussing uh, with patients uh, in my practice the difference between diagnostic nerve blocks, which is what I do just to kind of prove that somebody has a neuralgia that we can fix versus a therapeutic nerve block, which is something that's usually done more in the realm of, of uh, your, your kind of practice um and uh, my impression is that uh, steroids can be involved or different medications as opposed to just a simple um short-term anesthetic that uh, i do for my diagnostic nerve blocks
1: right so when people talk about nerve blocks in my practice there's two types uh there's a peripheral nerves and it could be any peripheral nerves it could be big nerves like sciatic It could be uh small nerves like occipital nerve and um, they can be uh, sensory uh, nerve uh, fibers that act as a communication wire between uh, one uh, structure like the joint of the neck or low back and a central nervous system. So when people talk about nerve blocks in my practice, uh, eight times out of 10, what they mean is I am blocking either a medial branch nerve that communicates pain from an arthritic joint of the spine uh, to the peripheral uh, nerve root that goes in a neck or low back, or uh, they talk about a uh, an epidural uh, as a nerve block done via transforaminal approach or, or through a small window. On the side of the spine, rather than a classic approach that people get when they're pregnant, and they deliver babies. And so, a nerve block is many things, and it's very misleading. And said, "Well, what can you just block my nerve?" Well, nerve block that I do for a nerve pain in a leg caused by a herniated disc uh, in a neck or back is uh, an epidural, and then it's therapeutic. And the purpose of that is to decrease the inflammation of the nerve, which has increased in its diameter due to compression by the disc uh, by a piece of bone uh, or by inflammatory molecules living inside the disc and so that is therapeutic when i place steroid on top of that nerve to decrease its diameter due to inflammation and then to decrease its sensitivity uh, and it uh, the symptoms of tingling or abnormal nerve sensation typically goes away along with pain or very uh, different other noxious stimuli that's a therapeutic nerve block I also do plenty of diagnostic blocks, and as I mentioned earlier, the one diagnostic block that I do is to determine whether a uh, a particular therapy can be effective, such as radiofrequency ablation. So before I kill a sensory nerve that transmits information from an arthritic joint, I wanna be able to prove it that that's feasible because you don't wanna destroy something uh, before you prove it that it in fact can be done without any harm to the patient, so those are purely diagnostic blocks. And I've also done uh, diagnostic blocks um, like uh, for occipital neuralgia to see if I can do uh, different treatments for that, and the different treatments I've done for that would be pulsed radiofrequency, which is non-destructive, non-thermal, to decrease the sensitivity of the nerve, but I had to find out whether the nerve in question was uh, either transmitting or generating uh, particular pain, and what you often have, uh, you know, nerve pain is very, very complex. And and nerves are not just little wires that that bring information from point A to point B. They themselves are capable of generating pain, and they hold uh, grudges, so to speak. If you inflame a nerve, it will stay inflamed for a very long time, and sometimes just with a therapeutic injection, if you can just give the nerve a little reprieve by blocking it for at least a few hours, you will find out the overall pain will decrease. And that has to do with something called central sensitization. And a concept that I like to use to explain it to patients is is the following. So imagine that the tip of your finger uh, was caught in, 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 a, in, in a but behind the hinge in the door when somebody closed it and you've injured the tip of your finger and you create a tissue damage and so the, the tip of your finger hurts because you've actually damaged it well you will wake up the next morning you will find out that your whole index finger will be flaming red and you'll ask yourself a question how come if I just uh, you know pinch the tip of the finger how come my whole finger is involved and you will learn that this was a protective Reflex that actually happen inside your spinal cord. So and this can happen not just overnight It can happen in a few minutes. And so this uh, uh, Phenomenon which is well described and it's called wind up wind up phenomenon is a protective reflex to protect uh, basically a whole extremity against any more insult and That happens in a lot of pain syndromes where a peripheral noxious stimulus or a peripheral uh, site of injury or pain will move in centrally after you know constant input of pain and will centralize and that becomes a very difficult problem. Very difficult problem to treat even with medications. And so before you get to that point, or even after that point, you can um, you can do miracles if you can even temporarily shut down nerve transmission so this central process of wind up can at least calm down a little bit and not torment the patient as much.
0: So how how often when you do that type of um, uh, uh, kind of temporizing, calming down of of the process in in the hopes that that it uh, abates, how often does that work?
1: It's hard to say. You know, I do a lot of diagnostic injections with the intent of destroying the nerve eventually. Uh, and sometimes what I find is I'll do a diagnostic injection with just local anesthetic without any steroid in it, and a patient will report weeks, if not months, of pain relief, and I'm just puzzled by it, and I'll say, you know, that was not my intent, but, you know, if it helped you, great.
0: Yeah, whatever works, right? Whatever works.
1: So, um, But majority of the time, if if there's a generator of pain, such as an arthritic joint that constantly feeds a pain signal caused by inflammatory molecules coming from this Inflamed arthritic joint, then um, when the nerve wakes up from blockade, it will continue to transmit that useless pain information Um, So, you know, my intent is to get uh, to confirm a diagnosis essentially with a nerve block It's a basically a diagnostic tool that I use Every now and then I'll add a little steroid to it uh, To help the patient uh, on a longer term and and of course there are complicated pain syndromes where I hope to block the nerve with everything I've got, just to decrease the transmission of a pain signal through it. There are complex pain syndromes that don't respond to nerve blockade, you know, for long-term pain relief. And, uh, you know, more often than not, they don't. But sometimes they do. And so, it, the reason my specialty is called pain management is that I try to manage pain best I can. It's it's rare that I cure disease you know um because of our degenerative nature as human beings uh we break down as we age
0: yeah well um but you also you, know, you and I've recently shared a patient uh, you know a, a a young man and uh and it's when you, when you start to see these issues uh in in young people um that 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 should should be um developing rather than breaking down uh, over time uh can be a a very difficult thing and with uh we're hoping that uh we have very rewarding whole... if you're
1: able to help them and, yeah. and get them back to normal life let me ask
0: you about um this rfa is that what when you say you ablate the nerves is that you're using yeah frequency uh, you do it so?
1: stands for radio frequency ablation essentially what that is is there's a machine it takes electrical current with a standard uh, uh, frequency of uh, electrical oscillation that comes from the electrical outlet, and it multiplies it up to um, a million hertz. And what happens is that this current comes out through a needle that is uh, specialized. So the needle is insulated for the most part like a wire is. So it doesn't allow flow of current um, uh, through other areas other than the tip. And so the tip has a hot or active tip. And it's typically between 5 to 10 millimeters in length and a diameter that ranges between um, 18 gauge to 20 gauge and, um, and there's other sizes. But what it does is at the tip, the current encounters very high resistance, which is surrounding tissue structures. Uh, and so an, a grounding pad it's not really a grounding pad, but it's a dispersal pad. Um, similar to the one used for bovie, for uh, cauterization, is placed on the patient to create a circuit. And so this very high resistance that's encountered at the tip of the needle creates a lesion, Uh, so a destructive lesion. Basically it cooks everything in a predictable diameter and size based on many studies done on these machines prior to their approval to be used on humans. And so I've actually played around myself on, on pieces of chicken breast to see how these lesions are created and how much time it takes to create a certain lesion size. And so I rely on um, x-rays of technology, uh, or uh, technology similar to x-rays called fluoroscopy, uh, to guide my needle tip to a known anatomic location on the surface of a bone where I presume that the nerve lives. I don't actually see these nerves because they're too small. They're the size of an eyelash or an eyebrow way too small to see even with ultrasound, but uh, based on anatomy, um, you know, I create a lesion size that I anticipate is large enough to kill that nerve uh, where it is. That would be for a small medial branch nerve that is uh, transmitting information of pain uh, from a uh, joint in a low back or neck uh, and causes chronic low back or neck pain. I've always done that uh, I've also done that for uh, knee pain, chronic knee pain where a nerve called genicular nerve whose only job description is to bring sensation of pain from the uh, structures of the inner knee uh, to the rest of the peripheral nervous system. and so the genicular nerve can be blocked initially to prove that the fact that the pain can be turned off and not just once but twice. And if I, uh, I am convinced that after blocking this nerve twice, uh, I can then go in there and burn it. Uh, after, uh, you know, anesthetizing with the local anesthetic, the nerve dies and it stays dead. But unfortunately, a lot of the sensory nerves do tend to recover. They grow back uh, and the pain returns. Uh, but it's, you know, a time that patients can enjoy without uh, persistent pain that is just tormenting them day in, day out, um, such as, you know, chronic knee pain or, or spinal back pain.
0: And, and you use that for occipital neuralgia?
1: Not not for occipital. The reason I, I haven't done thermal ablation for occipital neuralgia is because it creates permanent numbness in, in the scalp. I've uh, on occasion under uh, certain conditions have ablated third occipital nerve, which is part of the um, um, occipital nerve uh, at, at, right at the spine. But I have had a discussion with the patient say, Look, there's a chance that you might have a, a permanent numbness in the back of the skull. There's also a chance you can develop a condition which is worse than what you already have. It's called anesthesia dolorosa. Anesthesia dolorosa stems from incomplete nerve destruction. So you go after a nerve, you try to kill it, but you only killed a few fibers within the nerve and the remaining fibers have rewired and create a condition that's Worse than what you what you had to begin with, which is numbness, and at the same time severe pain, and it's almost like a, a phantom pain. Yet you have numbness in the area that you've attempted to um, to permanently disable. And anesthesia dolorosa is a uh, difficult difficult condition condition to manage or treat. And un, uh, unfortunately, I've ran into that more than once. And so I, can, I, I try not to destroy peripheral nerves that are combined nerves that are both sensory and motor, if I can, um, and I only go after small sensory fibers. I have not recently destroyed any occipital nerves. So what I try to do is I try to do pulse radio frequency, which is not thermal. It's not a thermal uh, ablation, so I don't change their, um, uh, anatomy, uh, and their 3d structure, I change their sensitivity and make them less sensitive and less likely to fire after I've done that to them.
0: So when I see patients who say that they have failed RFA, um, my, um, you know, these patients, uh, say that they've had, you know, RFA of their occipital nerve and, and, um, and the, their pain has returned, um, and those patients are often, you know, good candidates for me for for um, for nerve decompression surgery. Um, that's because of the regenerative power of of the peripheral nerve. Yes. Yeah. So, um, so uh, that uh, that that's a separate issue, though, from this pulsed the, the type of pulsed, um, radio frequency that, that you're using to desensitize things as opposed to actually ablate. Yes. Got it. Okay. Um, so, uh, we're coming up well, we've come up in past an hour. Uh, you got a couple more minutes for a couple more questions or, uh, absolutely do, um, you want to talk about Botox?
1: Sure, so I use Botox in my practice uh, quite a bit. I actually use it on myself because I get migraines. And um, I use 25 units just for the frontalis muscle and I and maybe um, well, 25 total. Uh, I use uh, about uh, 15 units for the frontalis uh, muscle and a corrugator in the front. And I use, I find a couple of strands um, in a temporalis muscle that I tend to develop trigger points. and. Uh, my suspicion is is that I possibly grind my teeth at night and uh, I get these uh, very infrequent migraines but make me very miserable. And if I uh, use just a little bit of Botox, I can typically prevent them entirely. So if I use it on myself, uh, I do believe in their utility on my patients. Helps me. It helps them. Um, however, you know, I uh, use different tools and I've noticed that Um, Botox for some uh, patients over time becomes uh, a nuisance because it's a condition that uh, is um, going to be lifelong Um, and they require this four times a year and it comes uh, with a cost Um, and so Botox is not an inexpensive um, drug it's about five to six hundred dollars uh, per vial and you can it doesn't come in small little vials. It comes as hundred units for the most part And there's other manufacturers that makes more smaller vials But you typically end up paying for the whole thing even if you don't use all of it uh, And so it's 500 times four times a year plus the cost of the injection and you have to be at the doctor's office all the time and so some patients will opt out for uh, the nerve ablation in the upper occipital region to see if that is more effective long term Uh, In some patients it it is, in some patients it does, and I use a combination. I'll do the ablation of the upper neck, I'll I'll continue to use the Botox if if they still have uh, pain. And some patients are afraid of ablation, they say, I don't want anything destroyed in my neck, and uh, I will only opt out for Botox, and it does work. And uh, again, there's also new medication out there I mentioned earlier, Uh, that's a antibody that's injected right into the muscle and mops up all the inflammatory molecules and so I use uh, everything I've got I never say we'll only use this we'll only use this therapy Uh, you always use a combination of techniques for optimal results
0: and when you're doing your Botox though you're doing what I call targeted Botox as opposed to the other thing that we call kind of the ring of thorns the FDA cleared
1: no, I don't. Injections. Yeah, I don't. I don't. I don't follow these guidelines. I think they're they're uh it's it's overboard. Uh, I've noticed that uh, especially on myself, you know, um, I've noticed that if you just deal with the frontalis for the most part, of corrugator muscles and the temporales, you don't need that many units of botox for one. Uh, number two, uh, if if uh you disable a lot of the posterior muscles like trapezius and occipitalis, uh, in a patient who say is an office worker. And these muscles now don't support your posture, your posture drops becomes even worse. And these muscle strands um, scar, you know, because your body will build up scar tissue too in order to support the, the tension that you place on these muscles. I, I think that's actually kind of sort of counterproductive.
0: Have you uh, ever had that done to yourself?
1: Oh yeah. No, I, I so hate I, the feeling. Bo- I, Botox
0: I, I, in, in your neck.
1: Yes, I, I hate yeah. the feeling. I hate yeah. So
0: I, I had that as well. And, uh, you know, the funny, I, I, when I offer it to patients, I tell them that my, my biggest problem was, um, eating soup because you can't put your, you, you can't put your neck forward to meet the spoon. And, uh, because of the weakness that, uh, that you can, you can get. And, um, and again, you know, we, you and I were talking a little earlier, you've got your children are a little older than mine. Um, although I'm a little older than you so that's uh, I, I lose on both counts there but um, being on the ground playing with your kids and lifting your head up um, yes after those injections uh, that was very challenging um, so but I gotta say that I didn't I didn't have uh, I didn't have headaches for six weeks after I, I did it um, but I only did it once so yeah and again you know for me yeah you know, I, I use Zomig uh, nasal spray and mm-hmm that works for me because people ask me all the time if I have, I, you know, if I have exceptional neuralgia, why I don't have surgery. And my, my response is if you have something that's less, um, that's less invasive that works, then that's great. And for me, I can take a whiff of, uh, Zomig and, uh, you know, that makes some people super, super tired. Um, you know, for you and I who've done our, uh, medical training and have, done 115 hour weeks and spent days on end, in, you know, in the ER dealing with traumas and things like that. I, I deal with tiredness. I, I don't even feel, but you know, for, for what, what I do, um, when patients complain that, you know, they've tried Zomig and it, it makes them exhausted. Well, then that's, that's an intolerance that then makes you move to the next, to the next uh, line of therapy. So, um, you know, it's kind of like a ladder of of uh, therapies. It, it seems a lot of times, and
1: I'm absolutely. And you know, I am partic- about, yeah. I in particular. I am particular. Have an interesting uh, etiology for migraines. We talked about etiologies earlier. Is that my migraines come in um, in spring when there's a fluctuation uh, between uh, ambient barometric pressure? So I am a walking barometer. I know that there'll be a change in pressure because I start to get a prodrome and then I'll get a migraine. And so uh, I only do Botox in the spring and and then the rest of the year, I don't have any headaches. (laughs) Yeah. You know, that's
0: that's interesting. Well, let's, so uh, again, you can cut me off uh, if and when you need to leave, Um, but I wanna talk, uh, uh, I'm gonna lead into this. One of the ways that I get migraines is um, I have, uh, an occasional recurring dream where um, I haven't done my uh, I haven't read an, a book for my English class in college and I've got to uh, I've got an exam on it and uh, I am trying to f- I don't know where the exam is and I don't know where uh, you know where the book is and I'm super tense and I wake up in the morning basically with a with a very tense neck and that's been squeezing on my uh, occipital nerves for the period of time, and um, and so my, it flares my occipital neuralgia, and this is my lead-in towards uh, diagnoses. So um, you know, some people would call what I have tension headaches. Other people would call it occipital neuralgia, and I think personally it's quite sad that a lot of people don't even know the diagnosis of occipital neuralgia. Um, and uh, but you know, you, you you must see patients with both with various diagnoses, um, <clears throat> excuse me, um, but also, you know, making potentially different diagnoses yourself. But between migraines, um, status migranus, um, uh, tension headaches, chronic daily headaches, there's so many different diagnoses. Um, and I'm, I'm interested in your perspective about what you think uh, these conditions share, uh, versus what they don't. And, you know, we, we've talked, um, with patients about the classic, uh, diagnosis of migraine in involving a padrum and, you know, the four stages, et cetera, but, you know, I, am kind of curious as, as to, uh, what your thoughts are as far as, uh, both the variability and the commonality between these diagnoses.
1: Uh, so I when it comes to diagnosis of migraine, I um, go by the book uh, by whatever international uh, headache society um, you, you know establishes the criteria to be and uh, you, you know I don't uh, I don't agree with the diagnosis of migraine because a patient tells me they have a migraine. I still go through the migraine screening questionnaire and you know there's this uh five, four, three two, one rule is, you have to have had uh, five of these attacks in, uh, before, uh, you have to have at least four hours that they last, it can be an hour, it can be half an hour, uh, they, they can last uh, from four hours up to three days um, in duration. It usually starts off as one side, it can involve both sides of the head, but it has to start off on one side, it feels like pulsating, and it's severe, it's incapacitating and typically it's um associated with nausea uh, so intense unilateral pain and nausea for the most part uh will establish a diagnosis of a migraine if it lasts four hours or more and it's repetitive it happened more than once in a person's life and then if it happens on a more frequent basis than that and then of course there's uh other criteria it, where people have sensitivity to light they have sensitivity to sound and I for one have had a, an aura which um, makes the diagnosis of migraine fall into category of a classic migraine. So there's classic migraine uh, with, which is with aura and then uh, migraine without aura. Uh, aura is a funky uh, feeling sensation. In my case, it was a scintillating scotoma which is a, um, a, a description of, a, of an event that happens in the eye. And if, if you can imagine you're wearing glasses and somebody took some um, uh, some some basic tracing of neosporin cream and just kind of smeared the glass of you uh, uh, in the center uh, on the left eye and you, you just can't see past it very clearly and it's just kind of smeared. And then this smear uh, kind of vibrates a little bit. So first time I had it, I, I sort of freaked out a little bit. I don't know what was going on. So I, yeah. I got some saline, started washing my eye out and I don't know if there was something wrong with my cornea. And then... And then having treated migraine in the past, something actually clicked in my brain, and said, hey, maybe this is an aura. And in fact, migraine came shortly after, so I actually calmed down yeah. and nothing was wrong with my eye. But, you know, to follow the the diagnosis, I, 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 you know, to establish a diagnosis, I follow the migraine criteria. And I also see quite a bit of tension headaches as well. And so I will palpate again. I'm... I'm take pride in the fact that I like to touch my patients and I, I run my fingers up and down their neck. Sometimes I'll even place them uh, in a face-up position on an exam table and I'll, I'll be sitting behind them by their head and I'll pull my hands under their neck and I'll feel for every single joint and I'll feel for you know the uh, T1, thoracic vertebra one, to C7, C6, all the way out, one by one, one by one, I'll go all the way up to the base of the skull, and I'll put my fingers into the suboccipital area where there's a lot of tension typically, um, and then I'll also have them turn over onto their face, and then I'll, I'll, I'll do a little poking, or kind of a tapping um, uh, technique uh, called a tenels sign, where well, I'll tap along the, um, the nerve, in a distribution of greater and lesser occipital nerves. And if I'll ask them, what is it that you feel? They say, well, you're tapping. But if they're shrieking and ask you, what did you feel? They say, oh, well, I felt this electrical sensation every time you tapped me over there. Well, that's that's classic neuralgia, you know? Um, right. Something Shooting pains. Shooting pains or, or tingling or paresthesias or any abnormal sensation when you tap the nerve uh, with the fingertip. Uh, and it, it's not always the same. There's, there's no clear cut. Um, diagnostic tool that says this is clearly neuralgia versus this is just tension Uh, but that's why we have a diagnostic tool in place like an occipital nerve block and so I'll block the occipital nerve that says you know what this was magical whatever you did was magical and You know, the occipital nerve block is different from trigger point injections into the trapezius muscle. So trapezius muscle will, uh, over time, from constant stretch, from poor posturing, will develop trigger points. And trigger points generate pain in areas different than the trigger point itself. So if you want to squeeze someone right at the base of the trapezius, they'll report pain in the temple. You know, that's not uh, lesser uh, occipital nerve producing that. That's a trigger point causing referred pain elsewhere. And, you know, so you have to be able to distinguish between those two. And so if you inject the trigger point in the trapezius, the pain syndrome in a temple will go away uh, because of uh, the nature of the trigger point. So there's tension headache is different from neuralgia is that it is um, uh, it is primary inflammation of the muscle, muscle fibers, muscle strands. And there's these little there's little sensors in the tendons called Golgi tendon organs that help in generation of these triggers. And they are mixed structures. They're, they're like a you know stretch sensing structure that also has a nerve attached to it. And if you numb them, then a lot of the symptoms go away. So there's tricks and ways of differentiating the two, whether it's clearly a neuralgia or it's a tension uh, type uh, phenomenon and a tr- or a trigger point. And so again, it goes back to a physical exam to be able to uh, examine them, ch- ch- check the range of motion, And so what you notice a lot of times is with um, poor posturing, uh, people have a significant tension, not just in the trapezius, but all the para uh, spinal muscles in the neck, they all tense up and so they have reduced range of motion as a result of that. They have very stiff necks and if you ask them to turn their chin to the right, to the left, to look up, to look down, they have a, you know, a very limited range of motion because of all this stiffness. So it truly is tension like headaches and and then they have referred pain in the forehead, temples, etc. versus with occipital neuralgia, it's, um, it's very predictable. You tap them and it's just electrical shocks everywhere and they, they, they hate the sensation. Uh, and but nerve-
0: do you find that you have more success with one type of diagnosis than another?
1: Um, As far as treatment, um, so number one with uh, tension headaches, it's basically modification of of whatever's offending your muscles, you know, so I uh, tell a typical office worker, you have to take two, three breaks a day, you have to lie down, face up, bring your chin up, unload your trapezius muscle and basically take the tension away. Uh, you know when you come home if you're really if you feel the tension building up lie down on the floor take a, a Small dose of a muscle relaxant. some people some clinicians totally hate muscle relaxants. I, I Use them all the time and people are happy with them uh, ver- Versus a neuralgia muscle relaxants will not help and so you have to treat that differently with a um, membrane stabilizer, you know, like a gabapentin or a Lyrica or, or a nerve block if you will, or a patch sometimes, a topical lidocaine patch uh, at the base of the neck will penetrate deep enough to get the nerve and sometimes help with that.
0: So, um, you know, for, in my practice, I have seen patients who literally, I've seen a single patient who had four different diagnoses um, and uh, of different headaches, and actually from from the same neurologist. Um, and you know, at the end of the day, uh, you, re- you, know, you you know, released her nerve, and and, and she's better. The, um, the 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 frustration I have is um, what seems to be some degree of ambiguity with these diagnoses, because you know, I I, um, I agree with with some of what you you were talking about but the you know i've seen patients with these that would be called trigger points in the trapezius region and it's in fact uh, uh the muscle is squeezing on the occipital nerve and their complaint is that they have pain that starts behind their neck and shoots over their temple and into the into the front um and you know comes out their eye that's a very it's a very common thing that their the pain starts in the back and comes out um, at their eye or at their eyebrow or at their forehead and things like that, and we um, we release the occipital nerve, and it fixes the pain in the front as well. So um, so you know that again is, is a referred pain syndrome. Uh, you know, similar to I think what you were what you were talking about. Um, but it seems to me that that inflammation can be caused by primary factors, or tightening of the trapezius muscle, or uh, an aberrant, you know, uh, occipital artery that uh, is crossing the nerve. Um, you know, lots of different etiologies to this single commonality that we can fix.
1: Yes, I I, I agree. Um, you know you, you know the anatomy better than I do in the suboccipital area, but uh, there is a, a small window or opening uh, at the tendon of the trapezius muscle as it goes on the nuchal line, and where it serves as a window for the occipital artery and nerve to go through, and if one- tunnel. Yes. And if one looks down uh, persistently like an office worker does or somebody who works at a desk all day, I can see how that compresses both um, and will cause a neuralgia just from the pressure. Um, But sometimes, you know, you have uh, people who uh, do manual labor or physical labor and have uh, trapezius overuse syndromes and they'll be laying face up and you'll find a trigger on their trapezius, and you'll squeeze that with your fingers, and put. But you can feel the trigger. You can feel like a, a small little ball uh, on the trapezius muscle, and I'm talking about lower down, not in a, a suboccipital area, way down in the trapezius, close to the shoulder blade. And you'll squeeze that, and, and send the sensation shooting all the way down to their forehead. And so I, I think that the mechanism behind that is complex. I, you know, I'm well aware of the uh, cervical trigeminal complex where. Information from the upper cervical vertebrae uh, produces sensation uh, in, a, in a forehead, in a distribution of the uh, fifth uh, cranial nerves or trigeminal nerve um, through communication of brainstem. So a lot of these structures talk to each other. Nothing works in isolation. Um, and if you have one area that's constantly aggravated and you turn that off, you can, you can turn off a, a lot more than just one aggravating area. You can turn off, uh, everything else that's seemingly anatomically unrelated where in fact that is, you know, through the brainstem. Yeah.
0: Well, I think that, the, I'd say the listeners are, um, are hearing one, uh, commonality through all of this, which is the, uh, complexity and, uh, tremendously interesting thing that the nervous uh system and and uh and and brain are and uh it is a it is a complex uh situation that uh that really does require as you said listening to the patients and um kind of letting the patients experience and uh um uh and and finding out what works and what doesn't in order to kind of steer their their therapy uh, in a manner that's individualized towards towards just them. So um, I can't tell you how much I appreciate uh, you spending time uh, doing this with me today, Dr. Germanovich. Um, can Oh, thank I, you. Can I just say that um, I uh, you know again, Dr. Germanovich is at uh, Restore Orthopedics and uh, you can find out more about his uh, practice at uh, www.restoreorthopedics.com. He's in Irvine and uh, I'm gonna bet that there's gonna be a bunch of questions that come out of uh, listeners here and I would ask uh, people to continue to uh, submit their questions to um, our, uh, our email at questions at Headachesurgery.com, um, and uh, I would uh, maybe hope to coax you into uh, doing a follow-up at some point, uh, so we can maybe field some of the questions that we hear. Uh, I-, I think that your your perspective is in- incredibly informative, and uh, and I really appreciate uh, your your being involved here.
1: Thank you very much. Thank you for the opportunity to learn from you as well. I'm always looking um, toward more suggestions, uh, more ways of uh, treating complex uh, syndromes and uh, disease states. This is, um, you know, eye opening. And before I met you, I didn't know these things could be done, you know, and uh, it's so refreshing to hear that people uh, offer different tools in hopeless cases, um, you know, and I have uh, plenty of hopeless cases in my practice. And I, you know, it's very, very frustrating to look at a patient who suffers so immensely and being unable to help. And so I am a proponent of, um, you know, uh, partnering with other physicians and and, uh, collaborating on difficult uh, to treat um, disease states uh, and or uh, problems.
0: Uh, I'm, uh... I'm, of course, always open uh, to trying to help your patients, and I I really hope we get the opportunity uh, to continue to work together, uh, both clinically and uh, to help educate uh, patients in manners like this. So uh, thanks very much, and um, we'll look forward to our next uh, podcast, and uh, we'll keep our listeners posted. So uh, thank you all for listening.